Our God and our King, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we get to spend together being encouraged, being challenged, being reminded of the supremacy of the rule of Christ over the universe, being reminded of his goodness to us, his mercy to us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Being challenged that the mercy that we've received is mercy that we need to be giving. God, would you help us this morning to um, dive a little deeper into who Christ is and what he has done and who we need to be, who we already are, and that the call to the Christian is be who you are in Christ. We're already seated with him, and yet here we are on earth still struggling through our own remaining sin, still um, fighting the battles to crush the enemy in our own heart. We pray that you would encourage us and cause us to be zealous, not only to preach the gospel boldly, but to live boldly as unto Christ. We pray that you would do that in us this morning by your spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in uh, Acts chapter 7. <clears throat> Acts 7, starting in verse 54. And I, I'd, like to, I'd like to start this morning off with reminding us of some things. Jesus Christ is King. The testimony of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is that Jesus Christ is King of all kings. That He is King of all people. He's not just King over a tiny strip of land in the Middle East. He's not King in some intangible, mystical sense that doesn't really matter. He is King of heaven and earth. And Jesus Himself made known His kingship when He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by my Father. And it was the testament of the apostles in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is king over all creation. Uh, Paul in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And... Consistent with the way that Jesus told his apostles, his disciples, that his kingdom would work, he underwent the greatest humiliation ever known and received the greatest exaltation ever known. The, the book that we're going through now, Acts, how did it begin? What, what started it off? The ascension. The ascension. The ascension was not just, hey, he swept away. The ascension was the event where Christ is coronated. It's a coronation event with him as king on a throne, right? At that point, God formally places on Jesus, the God-man, all authority in heaven and on earth. What does the author of Hebrews, Apollos, say about Christ on the throne. What, what is it? How does he picture that? What does he say? He is walking around, pacing. He's seated on the throne. What does that mean? It's finished. It's, it's, finished. it's completed. What he has done 
is finished. Uh, He says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Paul in Ephesians says, when he's praying for the church that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, he says, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power to be and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Greatest exaltation ever proceeded from the greatest humiliation ever, the cross. He sits as an established king. He sits ruling the universe that he upholds by the word of his power, and he works all things for the fulfillment of his word, his gospel, and the furtherance of his kingdom. We're in Acts 7. We're starting in verse 54. What has gone on so far in chapter 7? Stephen has kind of made a defense, if you will, to the Pharisees. Pharisees, Sadducees, right. the, the Sanhedrin, he, the, the rulers. He's walked through the fact that... Um, God is not just confined to the temple. You know, they said, oh, he, they spoke lies about him. That Jesus and Nazareth will destroy this place. And then he said, hey, God's not confined to that. He's, he's a bigger than that. So Stephen is a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian. Comes from abroad, comes in, and he makes the case that he had been making among the other Hellenistic Jews that Christ is king and God is not confined to Israel, that he's king of heaven and earth, that the earth is his footstool. And he uses that same language in his defense, which wasn't a defense. It was rhetorical jujitsu. We talked about this. He flips the indictment onto the Sanhedrin and basically charges them with what? Murder. Murder. Jesus, they murdered him. And what else? What have they done with the temple? They created it into an idol. Typically the way it worked in pagan cultures is that you had a little stone god that you believed that the presence of the deity was there and you worshipped the stone, right? And it housed the god. Well, they had basically, while holding their noses at the pagan rites of worship, they had done the same thing with the building, the temple, and they're still doing it. Watch Jews approach the Wailing Wall. They're still doing it. It's an idolatrous thing. And so Stephen challenges them on that. And they, you know, they're thinking it through calmly, rationally. How they respond. Let's look. Verse 54. He ends it up with... um, which, the prophets, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. He's, again, challenging them with their idolatry. Now, verse 54, when they heard these things, they calmly thought them through. They understood from the scriptures that it was probably a rational argument that he was making. We need to really check our hearts and repent. That's what they did, right? Because that's just the way people are from the heart, always. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. 
and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And, they were, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Okay. What's the response of Stephen's hearers? They were enraged. And that, that word there actually means they were cut to the heart. We've seen that before, right? They were cut to the heart. Peter's first sermon, the temple complex, the men were cut to the heart. What was their response? They reprimanded him and then put him in prison. First, first sermon. They said, Brothers, what must we do to be saved? And 3,000 of them were saved that day. They were cut to the heart. These men are cut to the heart. What do they do? They got murder on the mind. And they act on it. Well, how does he describe, how does Luke describe their response here? What are they doing? Grinding, Grinding their teeth. What does that mean? They're angry. They're angry. That's actually probably metaphorical. I've never really seen anybody ever do that, except in their sleep. <laughs> Hurt your jaw in the morning? Yeah, you're just kind of stressed or whatever. This is a, this is a metaphorical reference. It's used in the Old Testament, too, uh, for someone who's gone mad, for someone who's crazy, crazy angry. The wicked grind their teeth against the righteous, Proverbs says. Uh, it, it's this idea of mindset of they're fixated on evil and harm, right? It, it, is, it is that kind of idea. Uh, what must we do to be saved would be the proper and logical response, but sin is irrational. And, and that's what you see with grinding of the teeth. Sin is irrational. Sin is madness. Rebellion against Christ leads to absurdity in all its forms, and we see it here. What's, what's Stephen doing during their rage? What's he seeing? The glory of God, the throne room, and Jesus is standing. But I thought he was sitting. He's standing. And Luke repeats what's going on again through the words of Stephen. He testifies to them what he's seeing, this vision of the throne room with Christ at the throne standing. Um, Jesus had spoken something very similar to his own appearance before the Sanhedrin, by the way. I don't, in Luke 22, verse 69, he says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so this prediction of Jesus is a reality for Stephen as he's being murdered. This is a reality for him. He sees into heaven and he says, 
in front of the Sanhedrin, the same thing Jesus said would happen. And it does two things. Well, it does three things. It drives them insane. Um, it also, it also, well, nuts. It also shows that what Jesus said was true, right? It's, it's validating what Stephen's sermon was, which was that, the, that, that God is unbound. And it validates that what Jesus had said at his own trial is true. Again, he's giving testimony. He is at the right hand of God, but he's standing. Um, what does he call Jesus? What's the term he uses? Son of man. Now, just uh, for, for the sake of Bible trivia, this is the only time that title is used of Jesus by someone other than Jesus. In the Gospels, he calls himself Son of Man all the time. Here, uh, Stephen is calling him Son of Man. It's the only time that happens. Um, not simply Jesus. He's standing. What does that mean? This is the only time we see him standing at the throne. What, what does that mean? His attention is directed towards what's going on. Okay, his attention is directed toward what's going on. What's, what's, what else could that mean? If seated means that he's finished, maybe standing means that he's about to act. He's about to act. Okay. To do An what? An invitation? An invitation? To Stephen? He's welcoming Stephen. Maybe. Some have had that interpretation. Some have said it means nothing. It's just a variation of seating, staying, doesn't matter, he's there. Others have said it's an invitation to Stephen that he's welcoming him in. And those are all good. I, I tend to, I, I gravitate toward an interpretation that has, has some far, I, I think there's some of that going on. I gravitate toward an, uh, an interpretation that has a little bit more far-reaching um, effects. Uh, in my personal view, I've been persuaded that what he's talking about is he's mirroring, mirroring, let's say it right, mirroring the Son of Man, the role of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And the role of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, well, let me just, Daniel 7, uh, 13 through 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? He came to the Ancient of Days? The Father. The Father, God, yes, thank you. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all, not just Israel, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The primary, if you read on in Daniel chapter 7, the primary role of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is judgment. It's judgment. And so I uh, think, and I think there's some invitation to, to Stephen going on as well, but I think he's standing because he's about to act, and he's about to act in judgment over this very odd, I mean, we don't really see a whole lot of, of, I don't recall any, some major speeches in Jerusalem other than the council in Jerusalem on, on how to handle the Gentiles. But from this point on, things go out from Jerusalem. They've rejected, again, Christ. This is Stephen 
giving them an invitation, a second opportunity. Remember, his, his whole sermon to them was at the second time, they recognized Joseph. At the second time, they recognized Moses. Here's your second chance with Jesus, right? And their response is to reject and stone the, you know, the, the, guy, the messenger of the gospel. And so we see Stephen viewing Christ in heaven standing uh, in his role as a son of man, as the judge of all things. Uh, think of the parable of the sheep and the goats. That, 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 uh, that image of Jesus as judge is, is, is very often portrayed in the Gospels. He says it of himself. Sheep and the goats, when the Son of Man comes and all his holy angels with him, he will separate the peoples as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Right. And again, don't put moral implications on goats. He's using them as a, a metaphor. Goats are just animals. Sometimes, though, you understand why, why he did it. Okay. You have this vision of Jesus, then, uh, as judge over, over Jerusalem. All right. What, what is the response of the Sanhedrin? What do they do in response to his describing this vision to them? What does he do? They cover their ears. What an okay. When I was growing up, I grew up in a in a kind of a non-denominational charismatic kind of thing. And there and I went to a non-denominational charismatic kind of school. And there was a girl in our class that whenever anybody said anything kind of off, you know, color or whatever, which happens in high school sometimes, um, she would cover her ears and say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Which was weird. Um, but she would just cover her ears and do this. Why are they stopping their ears? Are they having a... Why are they stopping their ears? What's going on there? They're refusing to listen. They're refusing to listen. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Why? They consider, they consider it blasphemy. If, if what he's saying is true, and this is again why I, I trend more toward it being a judgment thing. If what he's saying is true, then... They're being judged by God for what they're doing and they have done. But it can't be true. So he must be lying. So therefore, it must be blasphemy. Right? And so the, the response to it is, plug your ears, lest God judge you for hearing blasphemy. That's the response. And so they, they plug their ears and rush him. Uh. They put their fingers in their ears to shut out his words so that God would not consume them for listening to such blasphemy. Rather than repent, they come to the only possible conclusion he was lying. It's blasphemy. So it says they rushed together at him. That phrase, you may have a textual note in your, in your um, Bibles. It says they rushed with one mind. You know what strikes me about that? Where else do we see one mind? I was thinking with the demon when they all run off the cliff together. Okay, that's, that's well, yes. Not what I had in mind, but, but, but yes. In Acts, let's limit to Acts. In a positive way. In a positive way. The church acts in Yes. I mean, it's, it is a metaphor for what they're doing. You're right. But go ahead. Oh, well, on, on the positive side, the church acts with one mind and is encouraged to act with, were... this, with the same mind. Pentecost. 
They're praying with one mind, one accord. They're all in one car. Um, the, then they act in one mind. And, and give, thank, thank you. Uh, I'm on again at eight. The, they, they act in one mind in giving and sharing of goods, right? This is the chaotic, unchrist, antichrist version of one mind. They're rushing a guy to kill him because he testifies that Jesus Christ is king. So you have them. Um, does this feel like an orderly event? I mean, typically when you have a, 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 an execution, in, in Jew, and we know this from some of the Jewish writings, what they would do is that they would get the judgment, they would take the guy out to some kind of cliff, 10 to 12 feet tall, they'd push him off of it, and then there would be guys at the bottom of the cliff where he was going to be pit, pushed, and if he survived that, they would turn him on his chest, and then the, the witness is, would take turns, first witness would do this, they'd get the largest stone that they could push, and they would push that off the cliff, and if, you know, then that, that would crush him. If he survives that, then the second witness would push the largest stone they could off the cliff and crush him, right? Is that what's going on here? This is mob, right? And the implication is the Sanhedrin involved in this. They're certainly not above it. We see later on with, with Paul, when Paul testifies before them, they go into some kind of ravenous rage. And, and that's the idea here, is that they're just, they've lost their minds. Is it legal for them to do this under Roman law? From what we know about executions, no. 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 Why? How, how do we know that that's not legal? Well, because they would have done it to Jesus. That's right. They had to go through the Romans to kill Jesus. Roman law forbid any city uh, of, of imposing capital punishment or the death penalty. They reserved that right to their designated rulers, the governors, the prefect, whatever. So you have these guys who are Romans only able to render, and they did often. I mean, they were pretty good at it. Um, but they wouldn't allow that to happen except in a free city that they called it. They called it a free city. Jerusalem was not a free city. It was a very captive city. And so they are acting against the authority of Rome to even kill Stephen. How many ways can you be a lawbreaker? The other thing, this scene doesn't fit what we know of Jewish, Jewish executions. Um, they would strip the victim before they pushed him off the cliff and push the stone on him, right? Here, who strips? Witnesses. The witnesses. Why would, they, why would they strip? And I say strip. They take off their clothes. They get, they get unencumbered. Why would they do that? Easier to throw. It's harder to throw in a big dress, right? <laughs> so they take the cloaks off. What do they do with the cloaks? They throw them down at the feet. Or they're held by a young man named Saul. And here we have again Luke's brilliant, understated introduction of the main character pretty much of the rest of the book after Peter. You have, um, you have the witnesses stripping. The picture is an angry mob pelting Stephen with stones. Um, and his death was not instantaneous 
as was the result of most Jewish executions. They usually follow the pattern that, that we talked about earlier. That's not going on here. He's being slowly killed with each stone that's thrown. But what were his last words? What are his last words? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound similar? Don't charge him. And don't charge him with his sin. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes. Just vaguely. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, he's seeing Jesus. He remembers everything about the crucifixion and what happened and is patterning his own death after the death of the king. There's just a trusting innocence shown in this prayer by Stephen and by Jesus, frankly. And what does Luke record? How does Stephen end? What does it say? He fell asleep. Now, maybe he fell asleep. Most likely, this is a metaphor used by the early church that they often talked about death for the Christian as one of falling asleep. Why would they do that? Because they're not dead. Why do you say that? Because they believe in what? Resurrection. The resurrection. And the Sadducees, of course, do not. So. They believe in the resurrection, so they often term death in, in like a falling asleep. Um, they're emphasizing their assurance of the resurrection, and gosh, <laughs> what assurance Stephen must have had. Peering into heaven, seeing Christ standing. All right, that's a very inspiring, sad sort of story. Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see a lot of similar kind of things going on. How do we know any of this? How do we know, I mean, does it record John or Peter in the back of the hall at the temple complex watching the trial in Stephen's defense? Does it record any of that? Who could be there to give an account for what's going on here? Saul. Saul. Think about that. And this is, this is what blows me away. As Stephen is giving his defense and talking about the unbound God, that God, that Christ is king over all peoples, all nations, all languages, as the Son of Man, as he's doing it, the one person who would later, and we'll see it in just the next few verses, unleash a persona, be the personification of persecution in Jerusalem and beyond, the one person who's approving what they're murdering this man, while they're murdering him, they're approving, he would become the embodiment of the church's mission to the Gentile world. And he's watching all this. And he talks about this later in his defense at the end of Acts. You see him talking about, I was there when Stephen was murdered and I held the coats in approval of what was going on. And as Stephen is proclaiming Christ to the nations, not just Israel, the one man who is at this point hating and gnashing his own teeth in madness against the risen Christ God's calling him, and we'll call him in chapter 9 when we get there.
the fulfillment of what Stephen is talking about before the Sanhedrin that, that enrages them and gets him murdered is, is seen or begun, I'll put it that way, begun in Saul, the terrorist who's sitting there giving approval over, um, over his murder. That blows me away. Saul, the man who held the cloaks of the strip witnesses as they stoned Stephen, would be the one who most fully carried out the implications of Stephen's words. Saul, who would later be Paul, testified what a profound impact the trial and stoning of Stephen had on him. But here, Luke simply records Saul is approving of Stephen's execution. So, emboldened by their actions, and perhaps incited by Stephen's words, look at chapter 8. Verse 1, and Paul, and Saul, see, again, I'm already messed up. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what seems like a bleak time for the church, I mean, they had, they had had five or so years of relative success in Jerusalem. Up to 5,000, and then later on we'll see thousands upon thousands are believers in Jerusalem. Here, because of what Saul is doing, because of the emboldened actions of the Sanhedrin in murdering Stephen, a great persecution begins that day. They've got the wind at their backs with the approval of the people to crush this thing. And so they, it, it's bleak, but it's actually a transition time to the witness of Christians who were dispersed from Jerusalem. It says, except the apostles. What does it mean by that? Why would, they, why would they, I mean, you'd think you'd want to crush the leadership. What, are they, what is he saying there, except the apostles? They stayed in Jerusalem, maybe? They do, for the most part. Peter ventures out. John ventures out. Uh, is it just the apostles that they weren't persecuting? What do you think he means there? I'll just tell you. The implication is, the apostles are... Aramaic-speaking Jews, right? So far, the apostles have still given uh, uh, approval or they've still retained their um, uh, esteem of the cultural things, going to synagogue, going to temple. Doing, they're, they're still doing They're preaching in the temple. That's what they're doing. So the idea is they haven't completely rejected um, Israel only, you know, make Israel great again stuff in, in, in Jerusalem. They haven't completely rejected that. They're still trying to be in the culture. Uh, so the idea that Luke is trying to convey here is that the Jewish-speaking Christians still remain faithful to Jewish institutions. The persecution probably, he's indicating, the persecution was probably against the Hellenistic Christians, the Hellenistic Jewish Christians that were there, who had also the same views that Stephen did, that God is not bound by one land. He's not bound into this temple that you've built with your hands. The irony here, he says he, he uses the language they scattered. What does that sound like? Huh? Reminds me of the Tower of Babel. Where, to, where they go everywhere? Yeah. 
there's, there's that idea too. The scattered, I, I think seeds. You're scattering seeds. What happens to a seed? It has to first die. The seed has to die before it bears fruit. I think Jesus said something similar to that. And here we have this idea, the irony of being scattered by the very people who are trying to crush this thing. They scatter it then to the four winds. They scatter it to Judea and Samaria like seeds. And the gospel only grows. So while this persecution is raging, what happens with Stephen's body? He's buried by devout men. The idea here is that Jewish-speaking, uh, Aramaic-speaking Christians were, were to take the bold action of burying a guy who's, who's been a convicted criminal. That they weren't supposed to do that. They did it anyway. And they got away with it. They, they held lamentation for him. It's like funeral rites were going on there. So we see that the end in this section, um, it, it ends with a focus on Saul in verse 3. And this is the third reference to Saul in six verses. And his, op his opposition to the church is escalated. He, held, he holds the coats, right? That's approval of the murder. Um, and now he's escalated to this persecution personified. It's all, and he's going from house to house. Now, we know later from later records that Saul was a student of Gamaliel, who was the guy that said, hey, um, if this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. If it's not, it's going to die out on its own. Right? Remember that discussion that they had? He apparently didn't follow Gamaliel's advice. He is going house to house. And, and is he just grabbing the men? And the women. What does that tell you? He's still grinding his teeth. He's still maddened by this. He believes that he's being zealous for God. And this word ravaging the church is language that's used in, in the, the Greek Old Testament for beasts tearing at raw flesh. It says house to house. He's probably breaking into house assemblies. You know, as they're meeting together from house to house. He's probably breaking into churches. He's, you know, doing what we see a lot of the persecution going on around the world. Breaking into house churches and grabbing, dragging people away. One, uh, one commentator says, So much does he embody this persecution in his own body that the church is later described as being at peace upon his conversion in chapter 931. It's a big deal. Alright, so when you read about this account of Stephen's witness and death, what, what hits you? What hits you about this? He's so bold that he's got no fear. He's got no fear. Seems that way, at least from the way it's written. Okay. Bold yet gracious. Bold yet gracious? Convict them. Just... Yeah, we never know if he's going to give them an altar call. Right? <laughs> he never gets to that point. It seems like he's building up to... Uh, to, you know, you, you crucified, but now... You know, Peter did the same thing. But come, brothers. Come, repent. Try, when he never gets to that. They rush him before he even can get to that. And so he's acting graciously in his death uh, of, uh, you know, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, idea, the same that Jesus had. What, what, else, what else strikes you about this Stephen's whole narrative? Yes, ma'am. Um, for me, I, I think it's so easy to want to be like Stephen and, or think, you know, if I was in that situation, maybe I would be able to act the same. But really, I feel like a lot of us 
are kind of like the council, the Sanhedrin, and when we're faced with truth, it's kind of like a litmus test on, you know, if it cuts our hearts. Sometimes we cover it in layers of self-justification mm -hmm. so much to where we're blinded and we can justify doing horrible things like this. Mm -hmm. So that's what gets me is that, I don't know, just the, the, how the literature of, they were enraged and ground their teeth, how it, it so much portrays and, you know, without the grace of God, how we are naturally. How we would respond to correction, yeah. how we naturally push back against somebody, maybe even humbly trying to say, this isn't right, you need to repent. Yeah. Our, our pride is there and it drives us insane to think that we're not perfect. And we think we're doing good. Like We think we can trick ourselves. And the way we do that is often to say, you're being a legalist. <laughs> Stop being a legalist. Yeah, good. What else? I put down two things. Okay. Uh, when you were talking about they went and rushed after him together, uh, I put unity is good, but unity with the wrong people in the wrong direction can be destructive. Right. Um, and then I put for verse 60 where he's praying, Lord, take my spirit and for their forgiveness. Right. Man, you've really got to have the heart of Christ long before that day comes. Yeah. Because you don't just suddenly... Get a glow, an angelic glow in your face. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that doesn't just happen quickly. Yeah, that's a that's a practice. Right, right. Yeah. So prepare now is the is the takeaway from that. Yes, sir. You can see a natural progression. You know, Peter he he preaches in the synagogue and they reprimand him, but they they're not near as harsh mm -hmm. with him as they are with Stephen, and I think that's because. Because he's a Jew, mm -hmm. he holds reverence and respect from being a Jew. But Stephen, you can see the progression because he's a Greek. Isn't he a Greek Hellenist? Well, he's a Jew, but he's he's a, but outside he's, Jerusalem. He's a Hellenistic. He's an outsider. Yeah, and sort so of. You see the progression of you know. Well, Peter, he's kind of in, in the inside circle, but now Stephen, he's somebody on the outside. That's I think one of the reasons they're so they're watching this thing spread. Yeah. And seeing the progression. Yeah. Which Jesus predicted. Predicted. Which Jesus said. Right. And I think that's why that's part of the reason why they're so great. So you follow the logic behind yeah. it. Yeah. Well, he didn't actually try to make friends here either. I mean, Stephen goes at him with you murdered. Peter didn't either. Well, you're right. You're right. He didn't. He didn't. But at least he got to his altar call. <laughs> so yes. Um, I I don't know. I, I probably need to think this through more. But in verse 55, where it says, "But he full of the Holy Spirit." gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's just interesting to me that um, the participation we have with the Trinity, he's full of the Holy mm. Spirit and he's having communion with God wow, yeah. and the Son. And in another sense of Jesus standing, um, you know, he's on trial here and you're supposed to have... Um, witnesses for and against mm -hmm. and it's like the trinity is a witness a for sense, is his witnesses yeah. standing there for him right interesting against yeah, that's the, a, yeah, that's the, a good point. the false witnesses of the sanhedrin yeah um, just kind of that seeing how their participation right 
with each member of the Trinity. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Um, no, that's 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 good. And one of, one of the things that really landed on me this week as I was going through this is the idea that how mighty is Christ the King that He makes even His enemies uh, bend to Him. Um, his enemies to serve Him. Um, in, in Psalm 110 it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And the verse 3 says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning... The dew of your youth will be yours. And after a seeming defeat here, I mean, this guy was a, a rock star celebrity preacher among the Hellenistic Jews, right? He was the you know, Kevin DeYoung among the Hellenists or something. He's a rock star. And he makes this impassioned plea to the leadership, repent. This is why. And they kill him. Um... And yet, in the midst of that, the most prolific Gentile missionary comes out of that event. How powerful is Christ the King? This murdering zealot would be radically transformed, and with regard to the rejection of the Jewish people, of Jesus the Messiah and His plans for their final redemption, He says this in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Christ is King. He sits having accomplished what His Father sent Him to do. He stands to receive his own who have trusted him alone, or he stands in judgment against those who have rejected him. There's no one who is not subject to his authority and judgment, and there is no one who can, ex who can escape the transforming power of his mercy. Even if we are killed, he reigns, and in his power grants us life. That should give us great confidence. Great confidence. There is no sickness we endure. There is no uh, pushback or persecution we endure. There is, there is no struggle within the church that we endure. Where Christ is not king and bending all things and expanding his kingdom in it. That should give us great confidence. We shouldn't be wringing our hands in anxiety over the state of the world. He's still king. This should give us a great confidence in being faithful to proclaim the gospel boldly and be like John Bunyan's Christian who said, to go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death and life everlasting beyond it. I will yet go forward. We can have that confidence because Christ is king. Any other comments? We probably need to get moving here. I noticed um, that at the beginning of 8, when it says that from that day, after that 
persecution of Stephen, the stoning of him, mm-hmm. Saul began ravaging the church. Mm-hmm. And so you wonder, um, it's really hard to think about God's sovereignty mm-hmm. inciting or, or planning for that mm-hmm. crazy outcome, his, his martyrdom, and that being an instrument to provoke Saul to, you know, essentially spread the gospel of the church. Right. And so it's hard it's hard to think about all the sacrifices of life and liberty that were taken, mm-hmm. but that that was so much part of God's plan because it moved the gospel along. Right. Um, and then later on, I mean, that's what made Saul's conversion so great and what right. made his name, you know, famous and all the communities of Christians even before he got there. Yeah. So that that paved the way for them to see, oh my word, we really believe now because look at this man who was changed. Right. Um, I just thought that was interesting that, that God's, I mean, just learning a lot recently about all the terrible things that happen and mm-hmm. how there's an undercurrent of God's grace that mm-hmm. will be unraveled when you get to it. It's just really horrible in the moment. And we may not see it. We may not see the benefit of things that we go through. Mm-hmm. And yet, Christ is king. He sees it, right? <laughs> he sees the beauty of it. He sees what he's doing. And we trust him. There, there is, a, I think, a tendency for us to forget that he's creator, we're creature. And Philip has said this from the pulpit, and I think he's right. If we knew everything... We'd be God. We don't know everything. We're not God. We're His creatures. And we trust Him and His goodness and His mercy. But yes, all things, Romans 8, kind of stands there as the big mountaintop, isn't it? All things work together for the good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we just kind of put that on, you know, Hallmark cards. And we don't really, that has real life implications for all of us. All right. I know that the mind can only absorb what the behind can endure, so I will go ahead and pray, and let's move on. Father, the phrase that keeps echoing in my head is, for your joy. And I know that I wrestle with what does that mean when I see some of the things that people go through, people in this church go through, my brothers and sisters in Christ go through, and yet that you are working for our joy, for your kingdom. What does that look like? I thank you for narratives like what Luke has recorded here of Stephen. That we serve a real king. A real God. Whose eye is on his people. Would you calm our hearts with that massive truth? Would you encourage us to be bold in proclaiming a gospel that calls every man, every man, every woman, every child, everywhere 
to submit themselves under the authority and leadership and to the obedience of Christ and Christ alone. We don't invite people. We call them to the reality of what already is. And either they're going to be received by Him or judged by Him. And Father, we pray that Your mercy spreads so that more are received by Him. Would You make us faithful witnesses, calling all men everywhere to repent and be reconciled to God. We pray for these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.